All right. How's everybody doing today? Merry Christmas. Hope you had a wonderful celebration uh, yesterday. My name is James. I am one of the pastors here at, at Riverview. I am a sucker for uh, those feel-good stories, which are abundant uh, at this time of year, those like random act of kindness things or like everyday hero. I, I love those. And I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, the greatest uh, Christmas movie of all time, which of course is Die Hard. Um, uh, or actually, my wife, uh, she loves that The Wonderful Life. I think when they do surveys, that's actually the one that people say is their favorite. My wife loves that one. That's a great story along these lines. When, whenever there are acts of service that are highlighted, especially when it's like an ordinary person that does something sacrificial to help other people, no matter how small or substantial, um, there's lots of media outlets who have, 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 are featuring these. I saw one on Instagram the other day, and it was a woman who went to a restaurant and she was sitting by herself. And when she ordered her food, she ordered a cake. And the waitress, uh, kind of in the conversation, realized this woman was celebrating her birthday and she was sitting by herself. And so she went around the restaurant and got, she didn't just get all the employees and they didn't just sing happy birthday. She gathered everybody that was in the restaurant, all the employees, and they moved their tables over to where this woman was sitting and they celebrated her birthday with her. And watching the, her face and the whole thing, I just was just like captivated by that. There was something so powerful to me. Um, one that was more substantial, I saw this one a few weeks ago on YouTube. It was a story about a young woman who um, was on a cross-country trip in her car, and she had some kids in the car with her that she was nannying for. And she was on an empty highway, and it was in the middle of central Illinois, the middle of the night. Maybe some of you have been there before, uh, just driving. And she looked up, and there was a car coming straight toward her on the wrong side of the highway really fast. This person had gotten, um, you know, just going the wrong way. And there was one other car on the highway, and it was up ahead of her. It was a police officer, uh, Gerald Ellis uh, was his name. And he was one lane over, and he quickly kind of diagnosed what was happening. He looked up and saw, and so he swerved his car in front of the car that was traveling too fast the wrong way on the highway to prevent it from hitting the car with this young woman. And he, this officer Ellis, was killed in this car crash. And I don't know about you, but when I read stories like that, I think about, and I've read that story a couple times, and even right now, I'm just getting, there's, uh, there's something just grabbing my, my heart. There's a lump of emotion that comes with this sort of, act of sacrifice grabs a hold of us. I think it's because God has wired that response into us. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. If you're new here at Riverview, we're in the fourth week of this series uh, where we're working our way through this centuries-old statement of core Christian beliefs called the Apostles' Creed. And the section that we're covering this weekend is this idea, uh, this truth that God showed his great love th uh, for us through his death on our behalf. In Romans 5, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. 
Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's where we're going um, with this section of the Apostles' Creed today. And here's the thing. I think oftentimes we want to believe that we're the woman um, innocently kind of cruising down the highway, just minding her own business, and that Jesus is kind of like the Gerald Ellis in the story, swerving to protect us from the reckless driver and sacrificing his life to save ours in the process. That's, um, that, may, you know, that, that could be partly true or whatever. But I do think it's more accurate to think of ourselves as the reckless driver, the person that is heading the wrong way down the highway, just doing our own thing. Because what the Romans says is that while we were still in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, that's when Jesus veered into that path on our behalf to prove God's love for us. So each week in the series, and we'll do it again today, go ahead and stand. We are um, reciting the Apostles' Creed here together. And uh, if you don't have it memorized yet, we'll have the, the, um, it up on the screen for you. So you can follow along that way. Um, some of, we don't, none of you have it memorized. I got it. I'm with you. Maybe a little bit. And we'll go this way. Let's start. You guys ready? Everybody good? All right. I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So the the section that we're focusing on today is, is this one. He, that's Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Five historical statements that tell us what, right? What happened to Jesus? And our first task will be, what does the Bible have to say? What's the biblical foundation for these truths? Um, For that part, we'll rely on the eyewitness testimony of Matthew, who was one of Jesus's closest friends and followers. And so you can flip over to Matthew 27 or find that on your device or whatever. That's where we'll be there today. As we read through Matthew's account of the what, we'll also uh, start to get a sense of the why. That becomes apparent. Why did Jesus endure such suffering? Why was he crucified? Why did he die? And what do the suffering and death of Jesus mean for us? So let's break it down. Those five little pieces. We'll start with he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now I'm aware uh, this is family style church here today. There's kids in the room. So I'll do my best to handle this carefully. Uh, But at the same time, I do think we tend to forget how truly horrific the suffering of Jesus Christ actually was. In fact, he had actually suffered a great deal before 
coming face to face with Pilate. He was betrayed by Judas. He was falsely accused. He went in front of the the high priest and the Jewish leadership, and he was beaten and and spat upon and disparaged by, by that group of people. And now he's brought before Pilate, and that's what the creed talks about. So that's where we'll focus Um, here at the beginning of Matthew 27. It says, when daybreak came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. After tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And so you have these two groups of people that are separately but also collaboratively combining to cause the suffering of Jesus. It's the Jewish leadership, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, and the elders and the scribes on that side, and then the Roman governor, uh, Pilate, and the soldiers and all that. You'll see them uh, throughout the story, those two groups uh, sort of working together. Verse 15, at the festival, remember this happened during the Passover feast of the Jews. You're talking about over a million Jewish men, women, and children gathered in and around Jerusalem for this Passover feast. It's just this whole chaos thing happening. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, it's important to keep your eye on Barabbas in this story because I think he's the one that's the most like us. And yes, that means we are like the notorious prisoner, right? Barabbas's name means son of God, Barabbas or child of God. And this is a, a person created by God, known by God, but who has veered away from God. He's on death row. And as you watch what happens, he doesn't receive the punishment that he deserves because Jesus takes it instead. And that's kind of the position we find ourselves in here too. There's a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gather together, Pilate said to them, this is the giant crowd here at the festival, who is it that you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who was called the Christ? For he knew that was because of envy that they had handed him over. Um, And so verse 20, skipping down here, the chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas. They're working behind the scenes in this massive crowd. Ask Pilate to have Barabbas released and execute Jesus. Verse 21, the governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all answered, crucify him. Then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they just kept shouting all the more, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children, which that statement just gives me chills because that's really actually what happened. Then he released Barabbas to them and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. 
And so there's that exchange that happens. Barabbas, we identify with that. We have the opportunity to freedom because Jesus has taken off to be crucified. Now, he mentioned in there, they handed Jesus over to be flogged, like a little bit in passing. Flogging is the, one of the, most, the cruelest ways to punish. It was their way of deterring people um, from committing crimes, the public flogging. And again, I want to be real sensitive here, but it's essentially they would pull a person, stretch them out, and they would hold on to a pole or tie them to a pole with their arms above their head. They had a handle with leather straps and tar on those straps with bits of, of metal and glass and stone. And you can just imagine as they would throw that, that whip around the, the, the person that was being flogged, just the damage that it would do. They, would, they, they say, historians say that oftentimes people were barely recognizable after a flogging, the, the, the bloodiness and just the, the, the physical toll it would take. They were half, Jesus was halfway dead probably uh, by the time they had finished just the flogging part of it. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. A company of Roman soldiers has over a hundred people. So they go into Pilate's house and there's this massive group of Roman soldiers surrounding Jesus. They stripped him. Imagine how humiliating it would be in front of that group of people. He is stripped Naked, and he's dressed in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thrones, put it on his head, placed a staff in his hand. They're making fun of him, right? Because his claim was he was a king. He was the king of the Jews. And they're like, my, in fact, it says, and they knelt down. Imagine these soldiers. They're all surrounding Jesus. And they're like, hail, king of the Jews, right? And they're laughing at him and mocking him as he's wearing this purple robe and this fake crown with thorns that are digging into his head. And then they spat on him. They took his staff and they kept hitting him on the head those thorns just going deeper into his skull. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. Do you know the suffering of Jesus? I, th I think we forget sometimes. Look at, look at everything he went through on his way to the cross here. He was beaten, slapped, tied up, flogged, surrounded, the crown of thorns he was spat upon, he was hit with that staff. That's just the physical side. The emotional toll on his heart, his, his spirit, right? He was conspired against. He was betrayed. He was falsely accused, stripped, naked, mocked, and humiliated. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And then... The Apostles' Creed said he was crucified. Matthew continues the story. Verse 32, it says, As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry Jesus' cross. You guys are aware of cross, what that is. It's two big wooden beams, you know, shape, you know what a cross shape is. Simon is carrying this thing through the city. When they came to a place called Golgotha, uh, Golgotha was the town garbage dump right outside of the city walls. 
It means place of the skull. They gave Jesus wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. And again, I don't know why Matthew did that. He did it with the flogging too. After crucifying him as though that was just like a little thing, crucifixion was the cruel, it's, it's their death penalty in their world. It's where we get our word excruciating. It's where we get our word crucial, right? And this crucifixion was both of those things. It was excruciating for Jesus. And it is, I would say, probably the most crucial, the most significant moment in the history of the world is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They had dug a hole in the ground. They lay the person down on the cross on the ground and they drive spikes to hold that person in place. And when they drop the cross in the hole, that person might bleed out from the flogging or from the wounds or whatever. But more often than not, it was because they would drown. They would suffocate themselves just with the weight of their own body. And it was just this agonizing thing happening out in public, people watching as they're trying to breathe and push themselves up and trying to breathe and push themselves up until finally they just can't. And they drown in their own inability uh, to, to hold their weight anymore. After crucifying Jesus, they divided his clothes by casting lots. And verse 39 says... Uh, those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. They're throwing Jesus's claims back in his face, right? You promised that you were gonna do this. Why don't you do it right now, right? Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross in the same way the chief priests with the scribes and the elders. They seem to be present throughout this whole process, just kind of working the crowd. They're mocking Jesus. Oh, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, right? Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he did say, I am the son of God. And in the same way, even the criminals who were crucified on either side of him were taunting him. Now, I, I am certainly in no way can relate to what Jesus must have been thinking or feeling. But I'll tell you, if it was me and I had, if I was God, in that situation and everybody was trash talking me and making up lies about me and calling out what I had said, I would have hopped down off that cross just like, Whoa, you know, and just the angels would have come down and we would have had a victory dance around these. I mean, they're just relentless, but Jesus, he had a higher purpose for being on that cross, right? And he stayed there. And he endured, right? So powerful. Then it says this in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land, right? Now this is, I know we live here in Michigan. It feels like it's dark here all day long. Um, but this isn't like call consumers energy kind of a situation. There is a supernatural miraculous component to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ where the whole countryside goes dark for three hours in the middle of the afternoon. 
And then at about three o'clock, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me, God? And I think, this is again, this is just James talking, but in my opinion, after everything that Jesus had been through, enduring uh, the, the physical and emotional and the betrayal and all of that, I think this would have been his greatest suffering. His heavenly father abandoning him. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That word, lema sabachthani, that's an Aramaic phrase. It means to leave alone or to leave helpless. And it seems like as part of God's sovereign plan to save the world through his son, there was a separation. Uh, Jesus was bearing the weight of our sin. And in order to, to do that, God had to leave him helpless in that moment. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. And then the, the Apostles' Creed said, Jesus died. Like he really, he really died. Verse 50 says, but Jesus cried out, again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. He died. And then look what happened. Verse 51. Suddenly, like right at the point of him dying, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, which we'll talk about next week, entered the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified, no kidding, and said, "This truly this man was the Son of God. Now, I have um, officiated uh, a number of memorial services. I've known several people who have died over the years. I've never, ever seen anything like this when somebody died. That right before they died, there was three hours of darkness. And then when they did, there were earthquakes, the rock splitting. Other dead people came up out of the... I never have seen that before. This was not an ordinary death. Upon the death of Jesus, Matthew says at least three things happened suddenly. One is the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what does, what does that mean? Well, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and again, imagine hundreds of thousands of people were gathered in and around the temple. In the middle of that Temple Mount, there was a structure called the tabernacle. And at the center of that tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was kept there in the Holy of Holies by the Jewish people. Some will call that the sanctuary. That's what Matthew refers to it. And the Jews believe that God's presence was there, that he lived uniquely on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant inside of that Holy of Holies. And no one was ever allowed to go into the Holy of Holies ever like never, except one time of year, the, the high priest 
um, which was Caiaphas in the time of Jesus, he on Yom Kippur, he would go in once a year and, and make a yearly atoning sacrificial offering on behalf of all the Jewish people, right? Priests would enter at the far end of the temple. There was an incense burning thing here. You may have heard of the bronze seat. That's where they would do the ritual cleansing. And he would come into this area, which is called the holy place. And there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the holiest of holy places, the holy of holies right there. And this curtain uh, or veil was 60 foot by 30 foot and four inches thick and represented you don't go on the other side. If you go on the other side of that curtain, you will immediately die, was basically the idea of, of this veil. And when Jesus died, that curtain right there, Matthew says, that stood between God and his people was supernaturally ripped straight down the middle. And the significance of that is pretty difficult to overstate. Um, the writer of Hebrews says it better than I ever could. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, we can now walk into the holiest of holy places and be in the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. So once there was a high priest and a curtain and there was a separation, and now that's not there anymore. It's the flesh and blood of Jesus that gives us direct access to the living God. And, by the way, the earth quaked <laughs> And the rocks split. Earthquakes in the Bible were often indicators of a significant act of God. Um, if you remember in Exodus 19, some of you may be familiar with that story. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And it says that the earth shook. And I was reading a lot of scholars, um, um, some of their opinions about that. They believe that this earthquake when Jesus died was a bookend from that earthquake when Moses received the Ten Commandments. The idea being Moses received the law and, and, and there was an earthquake then and now Jesus' death means that the requirements have, of the law have now been fulfilled in Christ. And so it's like this earthquake to earthquake sort of closed loop. I don't know if that's true or not, but that sounds fascinating to me. Then also it says the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now, did we just have a zombie apocalypse sighting in the Bible? A little bit, I think. Yes. Um, the moment Jesus dies, people who had been dead are raised from the dead. And it's this idea that through the resurrection of Jesus, that's next week, come back next week to hear about that, we do not remain dead forever if we are in Christ. We are raised with him. We participate in the resurrection with Jesus Christ. And these events, the darkness and the, and the, 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 the curtain tearing and the, the, the earthquake and the, the, the dead bodies walking around, they form a supernatural testimonial to the power and significance of Jesus' death. So much so that of all people, a Roman centurion and his company of soldiers, this is the same people who were just mocking Jesus. 
That group of people is the first to recognize and proclaim truly this guy, he was the son of God. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, he died, and then it says in the Apostles' Creed, he was buried. He was buried. Now, why is it significant to note that he didn't just die, that he was buried? Well, Matthew explains it really well, starting in 57. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus, one of Jesus' close followers. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body, and then Pilate ordered that it be released. And I thought for sure he was going to say, he approached Pilate and asked for the body, and Pilate was like, no. Uh, But he he must have been pretty influential. So Pilate gives him uh, Jesus' body to care for, which is what he does. He took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen. He placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. And so Joseph had hewn inside of a hillside in the rock a, a, an opening that was big enough for a person to be, for, to be their tomb. And it was going to be Joseph's own tomb, but he gave it to Jesus and put Jesus in there. Uh, and then he left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. They immediately, they're grieving They're present. Matthew's probably there as well. He was recording all of these events with the other disciples. The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, dude, what are you doing? Which is my interpretation, actually. That's not exactly what they said. But basically, like, why would you give the body to Joseph? They're like, sir, we remember while this deceiver was still alive that he said, after three days, I will rise again. They're afraid that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. That he was going to rise again. So they say to Pilate, give orders that the tomb may be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. If he rises from the dead, Pilate, we're all going to, it's going to be the worst thing ever. And so Pilate says, you have a, uh, they say, you have a guard of soldiers. Pilate told them, go and make it as secure as you know how. And Roman soldiers know how to make something secure. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guard. And so Matthew's point here is very simply this. We know what happened to Jesus's body. It wasn't lost or stolen. It didn't disappear. He didn't die. And then it was kind of a mystery. Joseph took care of Jesus's body and made sure it had a proper burial. Mary and and the other Mary, they sat and watched and grieved. The Jews were so paranoid that the disciples would try to pretend like Jesus had died or raised from the dead. They convinced Pilate to add more seal on the stone and more guards. Um, He was really dead. He was really in the tomb. We know that. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died and was buried. And then... The creed says this, he descended to the dead. Now that probably Matthew didn't see happen, I think. Uh, That's a bit of a different kind of thing. What does that mean uh, that Jesus descended 
to the dead? Well, the answer to that question is I am not sure exactly what that means. Um, There's some hints in the Bible. We'll, we'll, We'll talk about those here in a second. This is part of the Apostles' Creed, so uh, 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 there's a little bit, there's a lot of opinions about it. Um, John Calvin and Martin Luther did not agree with one another about what this means, and so if we have disagreement about it, then that's okay. Those guys are both way smarter than I am. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, there's a little clue here that uh, maybe will help us to understand. In uh, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. And if you don't take anything away from what we talk about here today, take that. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And then here's the part that connects with the Apostles' Creed in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And so a lot of scholars believe that when Peter says Jesus went and made proclamation to these spirits in prison in the days of Noah, That's what the creed writers were referring to when they say Jesus descended to the dead. Now, some uh, of the scholars I read say those spirits in prison, because they were um, disobedient, that they were um, people who were lost souls awaiting final judgment. And Jesus went and visited and proclaimed to them. Some say they were fallen angels. Um, I read one that said that Jesus actually... There was some uh, whole story lying around these fallen angels around the time of Noah and that Jesus went down to do a victory lap in essence and just be like, ha, I told you, I am who I, you know, kind of a thing. I, I don't know for sure, um, but from the reading I've done on this, a couple of things stood out to me. This is what most of the scholars agree upon. One is that Jesus continued to proclaim the gospel even after he died. Death could never hold Jesus Christ. Number two, people who were already dead did not then receive a second opportunity to get saved. Most of the scholars are agreed on that, that this proclamation wasn't like uh, a new um, chance for people to choose to follow Jesus. And three, that Jesus did not go to hell in a sense or need to experience hell to atone for our sins. Most of the scholars that I read would say his death, burial, and resurrection, which again we'll talk about next weekend, were sufficient. And this wasn't Jesus uh, having to experience the hell that we deserve. That's not what was happening here. And so here again is what the Apostle Creed says. I believe that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, and he descended to the dead. Do you believe that? Do you believe in the suffering, crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus? And if yes, what does that mean for you today, for us as a community? Two things that I think strike me um, as we close our time. Number one, through the death of Jesus, we can be reconciled to God. In Colossians chapter one, it says, for God was pleased 
to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Jesus was fully God inside of a fully human body. And through Jesus to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through what? His blood shed on the cross. This part of the creed is so important. It's through the shed blood of Jesus that you and I can be reconciled to God and that God is going to reconcile all things to himself. I urge you, be reconciled to God. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He shed his blood on your behalf. He suffered for you and for me so that we could walk into that holy place face to face with God. And then the second thing that strikes me is that through the blood of Jesus, we can draw near to God. Once we've been reconciled to God, we can draw near. Back to Hebrews 10, this first part we read earlier. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, I think what happens sometimes is we're saved people, but we still are like, oh, my conscience. I, I still have this struggle with sin. I'm not sure if I'm saved, right? And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. Once you've been reconciled, draw near. And then once you've drawn near, draw near again. Draw near again. Through the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. You guys, don't miss this. You can stroll into the Holy of Holies and encounter what the Apostle Creed calls the Father Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God of the universe. We have direct face-to-face -face access to him. Why wouldn't we draw near? Be reconciled to God and then draw near in full assurance of faith. Let's pray. Lord, this, uh, this account of your suffering, crucifixion, and death it is, is so humbling to us. We are so grateful that um, we could have been Barabbas. We could have been the ones that were released to go be crucified, but instead we were released to a life of freedom because you chose to step in on our behalf. Give us the faith that we need to choose to follow you, to be reconciled to you. And then for those of us who know you, um, help us, Lord, every day to draw near and then to keep drawing near, knowing that we have full assurance of faith, knowing that your blood has sprinkled our conscience clear, that in your eyes we are sinless and free. And then finally, I just pray that you would help us to be part of your plan to reconcile all things to yourself in the way that we live, Lord. Help us to proclaim these truths 
uh, to others in the way we live and talk and everything else we do in Jesus' name. Amen.